As we established in the first of our music mini-series, one of the ways that music can be political is in the now familiar genre of the protest song. While most of us today in the English-speaking and colonised worlds would tend to think of musicians or bands from the 20th century, it turns out that songs calling for peace, lamenting poverty, and protesting price hikes have been written and sung at least since the 1600s. Such songs have also been accompanied by songs mourning the decline of morality, the demise of gentility, and even the end of Old England. Of course, song as a form of protest or defiant political expression is hardly unique to the English-speaking world. For example, there is a large repertoire of Central American revolutionary music about class, nationality, and citizenship, which is accounted for by Fred Judson in Regula Qureshi's edited collection on music and Marx. Afrobeat pioneer Fela Kuti not only sang revolutionary songs against the military government of Nigeria in the 1960s and 70s, but was also directly involved with politics, at great cost to himself. What roles have such songs played in the lives of the people who have sung them? And what impacts have they had? Why should progressively-minded people in 2023 be interested even in reactionary songs from 1603? Well-known individual figures are remembered for writing and performing protest music. But it is also clear that this form of political expression extends well beyond such figures. In our second episode about music and politics, we deal with these and other matters by talking to John Street. John is an Emeritus Professor of Politics in the School of Politics, Philosophy, Language and Communication Studies at the University of East Anglia. He has been the Principal Investigator on an Arts and Humanities Research Council, or AHRC, project called Our Subversive Voice, The History and Politics of the English Protest Song. This is the main subject of our conversation today. Apart from his work on the protest song, he also researches the impact of celebrity politics, the politics of sound and silence, and the regulation of the UK press. You are listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net. I'm Tommy Gadir, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, you've been researching and teaching on culture and politics, and in particular music and politics, for quite some time. So, I'd be interested to know when that started for you and why you were drawn to that area of research. I think my interest in politics actually itself came from culture, that it was, I'm quite old, listening to John Lennon and following John's career was very important to uh, my realization that politics matter. And another figure in my kind of what you might call cultural or non-political life was I was a fan of cricket and other sports. And in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s, the cultural boycott of South Africa over apartheid meant that my sports which I love so much, were being disrupted by anti-apartheid demonstrators. And I was made to think, well, you know, is sport so important that it should go on irrespective of the political conditions in the country in which we're talking about? And so I think I was educated in politics through sport and through music. 
And it was only subsequently when I came to study politics that I realized that actually politics itself was paying much too little attention to the power and importance of music as a form of political communication. And so I think I came to to thinking about uh, music and politics in relations, largely through those personal experience. But then, because I was taught by people like Simon Frith, I began to see, yeah, writing about music was a, was a worthwhile activity. It wasn't just something, you know, you did as a, as a form of entertainment or, or relaxation. It was actually a, a place where politics, to, uh, you know, happened. And, uh, and subsequently, of course, I've used what I've learned about politics to study music. It sort of works in both directions. We actually mentioned sport as one of the many ways of socially bonding in ways that aren't necessarily political, but often might be the first place that people will encounter their politics. So we talked about that in our first episode of, the, of this miniseries. So it's so interesting to hear that cricket was your way in. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I know there are people who will argue, and I sometimes might join them, that the, the ways in which you know, cricket in its ideal form is, is a kind of utopian politics. Not, you know, the work of the team and the individual, uh, the, the, the kind of moral and ethical codes that uh, conduct behavior on the cricket field. I, you know, <laughs> if pushed or after a few drinks, I will often defend, you know, sporting, uh, sport as, as one of the higher forms of human activity and a kind of model for how the good society should be organized. I don't think anyone should take me too seriously, by the way, on that topic, but it is something that I sometimes feel moved, moved to argue. I think you might not be alone there. <laughs> no. In your UEA bio, it says that, among other things, you've taught modules on the politics of technology, sound, democracy, and British socialism. Uh, would you mind indulging us a bit and telling us about when you taught and what you taught about British socialism? Sure. That was... I, I taught this as one of the earlier modules I taught when I arrived at, at UEA, and I taught it with a, a colleague uh, who was a historian. So we were we treated British socialism as 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 a, as a historical subject in a sense because we're talking now in the 1980s. Uh, the Thatcher in Britain, anyway, the Thatcher regime was pretty much unassailable. And it looked as if socialism as an idea or as a practice was getting a pretty raw deal and, and that it might actually work, as it were, be consigned to history. So part of what we wanted to do was trace the history of the idea. Um, and that was what my colleague in history tended to do, looking at how you know, socialism as an idea developed in the UK uh, and, and, and what it involved. And then I was the one who tended to teach what, you know, what happens when you try to introduce Socialism by parliamentary means. So it was about the, the parliamentary route to socialism, whether in the uh, <clears throat> pre-1945 governments, but also most importantly in the post-1945 governments onwards, and looking at the, the both the possibilities and the frustrations that parliamentary socialism involved. I was also interested in the kind of ideas that people like Tony Benn in the 1980s was coming up with for an, an, a sort of alternative democratic socialism to that which both the Labour Party represented, but also the, the traditional left had represented. And that too was part of what we were trying to do. What were the new ideas that, that the left had to offer? And, and I was teaching this up until, and, and not, but not including the, uh, the, 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 the Blair government, which 
I mean, I know many people will not, would not, would not acknowledge that as a socialist government, but it was certainly a Labour government. And that's a rare thing in UK political history. Uh, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So moving on to your project, Our Subversive Voice, um, it seems to be a project that covers a lot of ground. I would be curious to hear perhaps an overview from you on what it is that you've done in the project, uh, where it's headed now and what its purpose is. Yeah, I mean, the idea of our subversive voice, which I should say is, is based around a team, of, uh, which includes my colleague Alan Finlayson, who's a political uh, theorist and uh, a specialist in political rhetoric. Uh, my, my colleague Oscar uh, Kosciansen, who's a historian of music. Angela McShane, who also is a historian of music of the 17th century onwards. And my colleague Matthew Worley, who works on particularly punk and, and also the history of British communism. But what we were trying to do was, I mean, in a sense, it was a kind of polemical project. We wanted to make a point. One of the points we wanted to make was that the history of the proto-song, as you, as, you, as you mentioned at the beginning, the history of the proto-song does not begin you know, in 1945 and on with Woody Guthrie and then Dylan and all that. It, it, it has a much longer history. We wanted to make that point and to draw people's attention to that. But, you know, the proto-song is, is, I suspect, a, just as music is, a universal feature of the ways in which people express their or their dissent and their criticism of the way they're governed. The second thing we wanted to do was to draw attention to the fact that it isn't a tradition that is exclusive to America or indeed to the, the form of, a, of a, a single singer with a guitar making their protest heard. As you mentioned, you know, the forms of protest song in Latin America, which are, are in a sense often you uh, are defined against the American form of the, uh, the Northern American form of the song, um, where they talk about the new political song. And these are, are, you know, important points to make. This, this, this thing is not a, a recent phenomenon. It's not an American phenomenon. It doesn't have a single generic form. And the other thing we wanted to just do, and, and this is a more parochial concern, was we noted, you know, that the history of the American protest song and many other protest songs, including those in Latin America, had been studied in detail. But the English protest song, which is different from the Welsh political song and the Scottish political song and the Northern Irish songs and so on, had itself been left undiscussed, unanalyzed. And we wanted to show both that there was this history and that there was this English tradition that ought to be acknowledged. And, and this was our kind of final polemical point, we wanted to establish that the song is an important part of political communication in general. And that it's not to be somehow assigned just, oh, well, that's just music and anyway, it's just polemical or it's preaching to the choir or whatever else. We wanted to say that it is actually contributing to the, uh, you know, the ways in which people learn about politics and become engaged in, in politics. So that the project had this kind of, um, you know, I, in a sense, but polemical point to it. It wanted to, to, to establish, you know, certain things about song and politics. And then, of course, we had the problem of how do you do it, <laughs> which I could talk about more, but you may not want me to, but I can tell you something about how we went about doing it. But that's, that was why we did it anyway. I think what we tried to do is, in, you know, to make our point, to show that there is a subject worthy of more substantial study. We've selected, and on our website, which is our pride and joy, which is called, uh, you find on com, 
is essentially built around a selection of 250 songs, which which run from the 1600s to the present day, that we have highlighted and which we discuss in detail. And then there are further 500 songs, which we discuss in less detail, but are further illustrations. And what's important is, of course, this list of 750 songs in total is not you know, a systematic sampling of all the songs that have been written that count as precious songs over that period, but are, are there, as it were, to make our general point that over that period, there have been protest songs. They have been about a whole variety of subjects and that they have uh, taken a whole variety of forms. And we, so we made a point, I mean, you could have, we could have filled 750 from the last 20 years. The, uh, we, we were very strict with ourselves. You know, we need to have a certain number of songs from the 17th century, a certain number from the 18th, and so on, in order to illustrate rather than to say, this represents some kind of mathematical, statistical account of what the protest song actually involved over any given period. It's a, it's a sample that says, look at the amazing variety of songs and singers that you find over this period. Mm. On that, how exactly did you decide on the parameters for what got to count as a protest song when you started thinking about this? We had a lot of arguments. I mean, you know, when I wrote the proposal for this, I had some vague idea of what I meant by a protest song. But of course, we didn't have it nailed down and we haven't nailed it down. It is incredibly difficult category to identify in any absolute terms. And of course, and one of the things we did, both in assembling the list of 750, we consulted uh, within within England in particular, historians and others, to say, look, what which songs would you include in the list that we were trying to assemble, and what would count as uh, as a protest song? So we'd already done a draft list and said, look, what have we missed? What have we? What shouldn't we have included? Now, what we what we had to do when we were defining the protest song was we wanted, in a sense, to make a distinction between songs that simply complain about the state of the world, or as one of our correspondents said, songs that just whinge about where, you know, what a miserable place this is and what a terrible time I'm having, all that. That is not what we wanted to define as a protest song. We wanted to define as a protest song, a song that in some way or other was trying to encourage those who heard it to change either in terms of their ideas and attitudes or in terms of their behavior. So this was, you know, there was some kind of intention behind the song in that, that, that was to drive people uh, to, if not to get out on the streets necessarily, but in some way or other to engage with political thought and ideas. The other thing we had to acknowledge, by the way, is that in the 17th century, nobody would have understood the word protest or protest song. Right. Uh, on, of that period, I mean, there were there were no rights to protest. There were, you know, people rioting, uh, people petitioned, people complained, but they didn't protest. And the right to protest and the opportunity to protest becomes much is a much later song. So, of course, we were broadening the category to include songs that, in some way or other, were doing what we describe a protest song as doing, but wouldn't have used that term and wouldn't have understood the term at all. So, that, you know, we have to avoid certain kinds of political anachronism there. But that was this is how we how we were working now. Anybody who looks at our list will say, well, hold it. You've said this is what we're doing. But, you know, well, actually, right. You know, it's a very fuzzy category. It's always going to be a debatable issue. 
But actually, one of them, the joys of this project has been those debates. People argue, say, hold it, why have you got this all? Why haven't you included that? You know, that's part of what we wanted to achieve, in a sense, to get people talking about what might count as a protest song. And we said, look, this is what we think. You tell us what you think. Uh, that seems reasonable. It doesn't sound like it would be a precise science, even if you tried to make it one. What kinds of issues were people protesting in, say, the 1600s? Well, I mean, in some cases, they're the same as they protest today. I mean, in the, one of the first songs we have is a complaint about uh, political corruption, people giving honours to those who supported them, kings giving honours to those who supported them, uh, which is exactly what's happening now as we, in the UK, debate Boris Johnson's uh, uh, resignation honours list, where he's wanting to send various people up to the peerage and uh, where donors to the Conservative Party regularly get uh, honoured in some way or other as a result of their of their generosity. So that story of political corruption and of criticism of the political class seems to be consistent throughout the 500 years, roughly, that are covered. The other thing that you do get in that first century is you get not many, but a, a, an environmental song, a song about the, the draining of the fens in, in, in uh, around Cambridge and and, and so where people are worried about what the impact will be of changing or challenging nature. So you get, I mean, that's a pretty rare example of an environmental song in that period. But you know, then there are songs that and subjects that you hear much less of today uh, about the relationship of the church to the state. Um, songs about religion are not necessarily in, in, in decline, but, but songs about that relationship. Interestingly, in the later period, you see much less on the political system, uh, uh, complaints about the way the political system is organised as the shift comes more towards rights and issues of identity you know, those things change, you don't see songs of that type particularly songs about hunger and poverty consistent from the 1600s through to the present day mm. songs about war and peace are pretty much there throughout that history, so uh, there's a lot that changes and there's a lot that remains the same in terms of what it is people write songs about and, and feel animated about, to sufficiently animated about, to, to use song as their medium of, of the expression. Mm. Our subversive voice obviously focuses on England um, for the reasons that you outlined. And during that 400-year period that you're dealing with, Britain, of course, had colonies. And so I'm interested, um, since you know I'm now residing in one of those former colonies, I'd be interested to know if you discovered anything about protest songs in the various former colonies and uh, or, or other countries or anywhere, really. Sure. I mean, I think it, it would have been great to have been able to do what I would have thought of as a comparative study and thinking about, because one of the big questions is, you know, why does protest song evolve in different ways in different places and engage with different issues in different forms and so forth? So I, I, I would like to have said more. In terms of, of, of how the English protest, well, what we learned, obviously, was that, that there were there are a lot of protest songs that we defined as English in the sense that either they originate from English writers, people who were residents in England at the time in which they're writing, or are published through the English in publishing mechanisms which are very important for that early period that we're dealing with when that that industry gets going is that that obviously britain and england's relationship with the wider world is a topic colonialism slavery empire are are topics of of songs uh the vietnam war in which 
Britain has no direct involvement is also a topic of song. So uh, these are, you know, the people look outwards. It's not only looking inwards in terms of what the British song is doing. There is one song that has an Australian, <laughs> that we've included in our list, that has an Australian connection. It's called the, the Hungry Army. And it was written in 1816. It's about someone who is actually resident in Australia, reflecting upon their experience and so forth. But it, we, we, I don't think we would presume to say anything beyond the fact that, you know, issues of colonialism, and particularly of slavery, for example, are the subject of song, written typically by middle class uh, uh, activists who are concerned about and the conditions of, of others. And that is characteristic of a lot of the history of the protest song, that it's not written by those who necessarily are directly experiencing the inequality or the political corruption or whatever, but who are commenting on it on their behalf. People, uh, you know, with money, with resources, able to protest, uh, which is, I think, true of protest generally. That it, it tends to derive from some elements of privilege or opportunity that are denied to those who are on the decision. But I, this is a very long answer to the question, which is to say, no, we don't really know anything. You know, I don't think we have anything to add to what is undoubtedly an important topic, namely. How, I, how the experience of colonialism has been protested by those who've been on the receipt. That's really interesting. Well, you do have a page on your website, though, that's devoted to, I think, what you call other voices. Is that how it's described? So there are yeah. non-English songs in there, as far as I could tell, or are they just about non-English topics? Well, the, the original idea of the other voices page is to have voices other than our own. Uh, in other words, it was draw in... Uh, writers and contributors from, um, you know, from other disciplines or with other uh, specialisms. Uh, but there, I mean, you're right. There is actually a really interesting piece there uh, comparing uh, Northern European in environmental protest songs um, uh, with implicitly the, the, the English variant of that uh, and trying to, you know, opening up the kind of comparative um, topic that you 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 you, you were raising. Uh, but primarily that other voices has been to enable us to draw in expertise of others to comment on what we've been doing. So the example we just put up there, a, a fascinating piece about the, the, the Diggers song, which is a very important kind of revolutionary song. And, and looking at the original manuscript of, of, of that song and, and how it got written and how its various versions uh, got changed over time. Um, through, through use and through content. And actually on that on that note, um, this is a sort of semi-nerdy question, I guess, about how you find out things about songs that were written 400 years ago when we obviously don't have, you know, recorded music before the late 19th century. So, you know, there were songs you discovered where I presume you'd only have had partial information. You might have had lyrics or you might have had some notated melodies, or you might have had only some of one and not the other. So how did you deal with those sorts of challenges when you received, you know, just little bits of information? I mean, you're raising a very important question, a methodological and historical problem of how you can document songs. And this is, the, I mean, the, the fabulous expertise of my colleague Angela McShane and, and Oscar Cox-Jenkins both of whom, uh, you know, are, are historians who've looked in detail at, at the particular periods where these songs, which, as you say, 
are not recorded and typically exist uh, as words only on, on a broadsheet. What those song sheets would have though also included would have been, in many cases, reference to a tune, an established tune of some kind. And that, ha that habit of writing songs to fit existing tunes was very common in, in those first two centuries we're covering. There is, and again, on the Other Voices page of our website, uh, Oscar Kostiansen writes about this, and the, 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 term, the technical term is contrafactor, I, as I have learned. Now, I, you, know, you use one tune or, or the same tune for a different song. And what he does, uh, Oscar, in that piece is illustrate how in offering different or uh, adapting the lyrics to particular tunes, that could be just, you know, a, a device for, you know, establishing a meter for the, for the lyric. Or it can be to make a political point, to use the tune because of its associations to, as it were, make a political argument that the song itself then emphasizes or, or, or ironizes, as he, he, he says. So, for example, there's a song called God Save Great Tom Payne. And that, although this is quite late in the history, and this is the end of the 18th century, but this song celebrating the great radical Tom Payne is set to the tune of what we know as the national anthem, the, you know, the British national anthem. And that, that's use of the national anthem and its associations with monarchy to the words that are celebrating a revolutionary is kind of a way you can, you can deploy music to make a political point uh, or to cause uh, some kind of tension amongst those who hear it. Uh, because on you know their loyalism versus their radicalism or whatever is 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 part of what we're what that you know you can establish through the historical study of the documents the original manuscripts all of almost all of which certainly in the early centuries are anonymous so that's the other thing we 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 know probably more about the tunes than we know about who wrote them and again Angela is very good at finding out as best she can who wrote these songs but often it is very difficult to tell. So it's very difficult to tell, for example, very few of these songs appear to have been, if any, were written by women. But it's incredibly difficult to know that because of the anonymity these songs typically have, partly because there's the risks entailed in writing political songs in an era where obviously there are no rights of protest and so forth to protect you. Maybe zooming out a little bit now, um, we've sort of gone zooming in and talked about methodology and finding no notated music or just words perhaps coming out of our subversive voice into the music and politics work you do more broadly. In your book from 2012, Music and Politics, you talk about how music is not just a sort of vehicle for political expression. You, you use the phrase something like, it is that expression. Uh, music is political expression. And I'd be curious to know what you mean by that distinction and perhaps if you can give us an example of that. Yeah, I, I think there is... And I'm sure you and you know and others are much more able to articulate this idea than I am. But it is that thought that sound, as a, as distinct from words, is is a, a form of communication. And we well, you know we know that in all sorts of ways, uh, alarms and, and other such things. But there is also in song, and, and one of the ways I always think about this and try and get people to think about it is if you if you take the same song. And here it's sung by different people, right? So what the only thing you're you're not changing the, the, the words, you're changing possibly the arrangement, but you're certainly changing the voice. And you can have a song, for example, like shipbuilding, which 
you know, it was written by Elvis Costello, and you can hear him sing it, and you can hear Robert Wyatt sing it. And actually, in hearing the same song sung by two different people, you hear your, your sen- the sentiments, the feelings that are, I think, you encounter are different. And Wyatt's voice is much more plaintive, much more melancholic, much more than Costello's, who's slightly more sort of strident in what he sings. And I think that, insofar as, you know, that the sound of a human voice invites you to feel different things, you can hear that in the use of, of voices in song. But also you can think of the ways in which certain um, styles of music, I mean, you know, a feminist band like the Raincoats adopted a different way of playing that de-emphasized the guitar and so forth uh, that was traditional, perhaps with with other kinds of rock music, as a way of trying to kind of de-center the experience of how you listen to it and how you identify with the players in it. Obviously, people are familiar with the claim, at least, that, you know, Certain sounds like punk convey anger. I, I think it's always a very crude connection that's been made there, but it, you know, there's something going on there. There's different kinds of, of sound, uh, noise that is being made, and the effect that that has on people. Obviously, performance is, is too. I mean, insofar as the performance is part of the song, you can, you know, how you perform what you perform at the moment, there's a massive argument going on in the UK and, and, and in Germany and other places about how Roger Walters is performing the songs that he takes on stage and, and whether they, in some way or other, embody, not by what he says, but how he says it, uh, anti-Semitism. Um, and also, there is the other way, and the, I, I think the most powerful in some ways is the way song and sound organises people. You know, whether, you know, whether they're on a demonstration, the way the rhythms and the drums, or, you know, when they're being threatened, the way that collective singing can produce in, in people a, a new sense of solidarity. And so, yeah, I, you know, it doesn't matter what you're singing sometimes. It matters that you are singing. That, that, that seems to me part of what I was trying to get at with this idea that sound itself, music itself, is a form of political expression. Mm. Yeah, um, and, and, and that sort of speaks to some of the research that's been happening in recent years about musical affect and the idea of being impacted by sound in some kind of way that language is kind of inadequate at capturing, but we all know it when we feel it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. I mean, it's kind of the argument that we understand what love is by hearing love songs. It's not that we ha- we know love and there we hear it reproduced in song. Actually, we learn from song what it means to feel love. I think that's the sort of thought that we have here. So, in in the bigger picture, for people who are concerned about movement building and organising around social issues, and um, in the case of probably most of our podcast listeners, are concerned about class struggle, it's clear that you believe that cultural activities like music matter uh, for political communication as, as you refer to it. And I want to dig down a little bit more and perhaps have you explain to the sceptics who might be listening how and why it might matter beyond just we hear some words and we might agree or disagree with them or whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the, you know, the, the kind of overall assumption that someone like me is working with when they talk about the politics of music is almost by definition one which accepts the so-called cultural term. The idea 
that, uh, you know, that materialist accounts of the world in which, you know, it, it is, you know, human activity is to be understood in terms over the struggle for the, over, over the control for the means of production or, or, or equivalent, don't account sufficiently for why the mass immiseration of people has not led to kind of revolutionary struggle of various kinds or revolutionary outcomes. And that part of the account that you have to give of why that hasn't happened is that the ideas that people are allowed to, able to express, have not, as it were, been reflected or made sense of their, their material conditions. So, so there is that, there's that dis disconnect between what is apparently happening at the material level and the, and the consciousness that accompanies it. And one of the thoughts is that in order to understand what it is that leads people to act in the way they do into is to understand the ideas they share and the values that they adopt and the, and, and how those values both support and subvert the, the system under which they live. And that it is in, as it were, our, it is at the realm of culture and the realm of uh, ideas that politics is, op is operates. And so anything that is contributing to the those ideas and to those attitudes and to those values is an important topic of study. If you want to know why people are doing things they're doing and acting the ways they are, then you need to be very sensitive to the cultural forms that they uh, engage with and how that who how those are operating and what they're what they're doing. And just as they may be used to control people, they also provide people with means by which to the weapons of the weak to to, to argue back against the way the system operates. And, you know, one of the things I've been looking at in, in, in the protest music project is how in the 1960s, you know, the, 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 the protest song movement was so closely linked with a whole variety of, of, of political actors, both, you know, trade unions, uh, the Communist Party, theatres, small groups of people working on what it is to sing a folk song and so forth. These people work together, you know, in traditional political form and in cultural form to create a movement that protested at the nuclear bombs, that protested at, at you know, the rights of women and so forth. These struggles come out, it seems to me, of that interplay of, of the cultural and the material. And, and, and it seems to me that you know, we, we as, uh, as those who want change in the world need to be sensitive and to and recognize the power that culture uh, offers. And, and, yeah, my politics, I suspect, is like it. Well, it's really useful to hear you talk about the cultural turn in the context of that conversation because I think that's where some of the differences might lie. It's not necessarily that a historical materialist lens would reject that culture is significant. I think rather they might reject, uh, and I've heard some reject claims that culture and in particular popular culture in the context that we live in, which is a capitalist society where popular culture is commodified, um, that that can have some kind of galvanizing impact on mass movement building or organizing or the sorts of things that someone with that with those sorts of politics would believe that it needs to do to be politically significant. So I think there's, you know, there's discussions about how there's a lot of communication and there's a lot of gesturing toward ideas and there's a lot of symbolism but at the end of the day it doesn't necessarily encourage people to organize right so I guess 
I wonder how you would respond to people who, who would say things like that and even people who have argued based on some historical documents that the cultural turn was part of a kind of anti-communist turn because it was it was a way to get academics to stop thinking in historical materialist ways. It sounds conspiratorial, but there's, you know, there's real life documents <laughs> that show that this that there were interactions between like Marcuse and these kinds of institutions. So anyway, I would just be interested to hear what, what your thoughts are on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, you, the, 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 taking the CIA and the State Department, people like that, I mean, they historically have been very aware of how, you know, dom- you know, controlling forms of cultural communication has been an important propaganda weapon, you know, as as the dictatorship. That, they, that, that idea, you know, that somehow culture matters is something that's entirely familiar to um, propagandists of the right and of the dictatorial left and so forth. It's it's not a, a new idea in that respect. And obviously, it, it certainly is possible, you know, nature, the, the culture to be used as a method of control. But it, but I suppose the argument that that is made is that, you know, this kind of boring Gramscian of us, that, that, you know, you can, because it's being used to control you, it also op- opens itself up as a form of resistance, you know, you can offer counter-interpretations to whatever the propagandist message is. You can turn it around and, and make use of it as a, as a vehicle of protest in ways that, you know, where, where traditional forms of political organization are frustrated or illegal, you know, that the form of, of protest. I mean, the, the ways in which in, in Hong Kong, you, you're holding out blank sheets of paper, you know, as a, as a form of protest, I mean, cultural protest, but it's a powerful, powerful mechanism. Of of, of 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 shining a light on the on the on the repression of the Chinese regime. I'm not sure I've ever encountered properly thought through that thought that you know cultural term was it was part of a means of, of controlling the academy. But you can see that in many senses it did. I mean the the arguments that people have about the depoliticization of cultural studies and its institutionalization is is perhaps part of, of, of the way that story can be told. I suppose my last question would be that you know you're a emeritus professor, which for those who don't know means you're effectively retired, and uh, our subversive voice is obviously a massive undertaking. So I was wondering whether this project is sort of like your farewell tour, or are you going to be like Elton John and Ozzy Osbourne and keep on keeping on? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, all I can think about is the book we're writing that, that is due, we should be out next year. Um, on on the project and on the you know, the history of the English poetry song, but I find myself drawn into other discussions. And so, although I'm not being paid anymore, I do I do still do academic research. I've recently been writing about whether Bono did actually change does in fact change policy. But it's true that as a retired person, I have more time to do other things. So one of the things I should be doing is watching the Ashes as Australia and England take each other on. I should be rooting one side over the other. And listening out <laughs> for the chance, no doubt. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I would regard it purely as an exercise of political conflict. <laughs> I'm very intrigued to know what you end up concluding about Bono. He's he's very uh, polarising as a figure. I think that's right. His autobiography is a really interesting account of, what, of someone who thinks of themselves as a politician. It's really, really bizarre in some ways. Well, look, thank you so much, John, for uh, for joining us today. Really appreciate having you on the show. And I will encourage everybody to keep an ear out for the next 
series of episodes in our sub-segment in The Sound of Solidarity, which is on music and politics. Thanks very much, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.